Sometimes our questions stand out. Sometimes our questions really bother and frustrate us. Sometimes questions we have about life, faith, the universe, and our purpose make us feel all alone. Here's the truth. Everybody has doubts. Everybody has unanswered questions that don't make sense. Some of our doubts are seemingly small, and some of our doubts have really stumped us. Doubts can either hold you back or move you forward. So the question is, where are your doubts taking you? Good morning, everyone. I want to put you on high alert for the next four weeks in the life of our church. This is such an exciting time for us at Crossroads. We're just right on the threshold of some very special things happening with the expansion of our campus here, with our partnerships, uh, with church planters everywhere from Brooklyn, New York to Dubai, uh, with, the, uh, with the anticipation we have of the Crossroads presence beginning to multiply in the tri-state area. It's just an exciting time. In the next four weeks, we're doing a series of messages through 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, you know, the Apostle Paul is entrusting to Timothy kind of his legacy of leadership. We're going to live in those four chapters of 2 Timothy. I'm going to preach the first two messages the next two weeks. And then I want you to circle the date of May the 14th and 15th because on that weekend, Patrick Garcia, our lead pastor, is going to share a message entitled, our future together, and it will be a very important weekend at Crossroads. Then I'll come back for my swan song on the 21st and 22nd. But fair warning, I shall return, and I'm already looking forward to my trips back to Crossroads. So the next four weeks, let's all… Let's just… I'll be up on our toes in anticipation of what the Lord is going to do with Crossroads in the days ahead. Now, this weekend, we conclude our series of messages that answer the four most doubt-producing, the four most faith-hindering questions circulating out there in the world today. And the first one was, how can we know that God exists? The second one, isn't the Bible full of myths? and mistakes. The third one, why would God allow tragedy and suffering? And this morning, why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Now, we've titled a series of messages, Room for Doubt, and we're trying to communicate that Crossroads Church is a safe place to bring your questions. It is a welcoming place for people who are struggling to embrace faith or struggling to live out faith in their daily life. And just as Jesus was never defensive, He was never threatened by doubt, we His people want to be accepting of doubters. We want to be open to any and all conversations about matters of faith. Now this final question we're addressing this morning is probably the one that you hear more than all of the other three put together. Why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way to our Creator, God, our Father. Why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Well, the answer is actually laced into several passages of Scripture, but in the interest of time, 
We've got to limit our focus to just two primary passages, and they are these two, John 14, Acts chapter 17. Let's begin in John 14. In John 14, we have the account of Jesus' final night with the disciples before He would be crucified. He's already exposed Judas' betrayal. He's already exposed uh, and prophesied Peter's denial. And He told them, the disciples, that He was going away and that where He was going, they would not be able to follow. But then He went on to comfort them. And He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. But Thomas was concerned about getting the directions to get to this place. He knew that heaven was where he wanted to go after the end of his life, and it sounded wonderful, but he wanted to know how to get there, and he could not enter the word heaven on MapQuest back in that day. He couldn't, answer, he couldn't enter heaven on Google Maps and get specific directions, and he wanted to be sure he knew the way. So what comes next is undoubtedly what is the most politically incorrect statement that Jesus ever made. Here it is, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, notice he didn't say, I know the way. He didn't say, I'll show you the way. He didn't say, I am a way. He said, I am the way. And just in case there might be some ambivalence about it, some confusion about it, he adds this clarifying statement, no one comes to the Father except through me. And many today in our generation just don't like the sound of that. They don't like the idea that there are no other valid alternatives. There are no additional options. There's not been an opportunity for us to weigh in on this ahead of time, no opportunity for us to process this narrow life choice. After all, it is a stunningly authoritative truth claim. And my first instinct this morning is to try and prove to you that what Jesus said is absolutely true and that it is reflected in His fulfillment of multiple prophecies, His thoroughly documented perfect life, His miracle working power, His atoning death on the cross, His verifiable resurrection. I could spend my time this morning talking about why this claim of Jesus is true. But through the years, as I've talked to people about this often asked question of whether or not Jesus is the only way to heaven, I've discovered that what's really behind it has more to do with emotion than it does intellect, and that people's hesitation to accept it is more subjective than it is objective. A lot of people in our generation are just not sure how they feel about this claim that Jesus makes. Some tend to recoil from His words here in John 14, we just read, and also what Jesus said in John 8, 24. He said, I told you that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will indeed die in your sins. 
And some tend to dig in their heels when they read the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Or when we read the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there's one God and one mediator between God and people, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So we have the words of Jesus, we have the words of Peter, we have the words of Paul, we have the words of John in 1 John, where he says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. So why is it that some people instinctively resist, or at the very least, they're uncomfortable with Jesus being the only way to heaven? They're uncomfortable with the statement that Jesus is the only way to heaven. I think there are two reasons, just at a subjective level. One is, I think people think that this sounds exclusive. And then secondly, they think it sounds arrogant. So let me address those two things. First of all, is it exclusive to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And any exclusive claim on the truth today is labeled, you know it's true, it's labeled intolerant. Herbert Cain writes, it's safe to say that the most offensive aspect of 20, 20th century Christianity is its exclusiveness, the idea that we're right and others are wrong. It's a real turnoff for people in our whatever generation. We like the whatever ethic, live and let live, believe whatever you want, who really cares. Lee Strobel points out that under our Constitution, all religions are equally protected. People are free to believe anything they want. But some have decided what this means is that not only are all religious beliefs equally protected, they are also equally valid. And there's a difference between those two. So if I assert that my beliefs are true based on the Bible, the clear implication is that the man-invented religions aren't valid. But does that, does that somehow make me oppressive? I, I'm not looking to force that on anyone. Does that somehow make me unconstitutional? Friends, while the Constitution establishes the freedom of worship and the freedom of speech and protects the right of anyone to express an opinion or a belief, it says nothing about which opinions are true and which beliefs are questionable or, in some cases, just plain false. Listen, all beliefs cannot be true because they often contradict each other. I think Ravi Zacharias had it when he said, truth by definition excludes that which contradicts it. But here's the thing. Saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven is not exclusive if it's available to everyone. Think of it like this. Two country clubs open in town about the same time. The first one 
admits people who earn their membership. So, to get into this country club, you've got to pay dues. You've got to meet certain requirements. You've got to have a certain status. You've got to fulfill certain duties. And if you don't do these things, well, you don't get in. But let's say the other country club posts a sign that says, rich or poor, red or yellow, black or white, short or tall, anyone from anywhere, no matter who you are, no matter what you have, no matter what you've done, membership is free. Come on in. Now, being a part of this club isn't based on your qualifications. It's not based on your accomplishments. It's based solely on the fact that you have accepted an invitation. Now, you tell me, which of these country clubs is exclusive? Christianity, you see, is not exclusive. It excludes no one. It is available to everyone, and in heaven there will be people from every tongue and tribe and nation because Scripture says that anyone, everyone in the world, all those who call on the name of the Lord, can be saved. And think about this too. Saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven isn't exclusive if it's true. (laughs) If there really is only one way, then it's not intolerant to say so. I stopped at a gas station last week to fill up the church's box truck, and I went back to unscrew the cap, and it had a warning written on it. It said, diesel fuel only. What if I had thought, well, I don't like that. That's so restrictive. I think I'll put in whatever I want anyway. Unleaded gas is cheaper. Well, about a mile down the road, I would find out why it said diesel fuel only. Or let's imagine our prayers were answered, and it is announced this week, this coming week, that a cure for cancer has been discovered. And it's a drug that you only have to take once, and there are no side effects. And this drug that you take just once with no side effects is 100% effective to cure cancer, and it's furnished by the government. It doesn't cost us a thing. Now, I don't suppose any of us would complain about the fact. Are you saying there's only one way for me to heal my cancer? Only one drug option? Why, I think that's intolerant. We wouldn't say that. We'd be thrilled. There is a cure. And in fact, we're all plagued by sin, and the disease is terminal. But God has given us a way to be saved. It's available to all, and it is free. Does it not seem a little strange to you that some resist because there's only one way to experience forgiveness? And listen, if there's more than one way back to God, then the cross is the ultimate symbol of the unnecessary death of God's Son. And think about this. Jesus prayed on His face in the Garden of Gethsemane, in agony. Father, if there is any other way, take this cup of suffering and death from me. There was only one way for him, and there's only one way for you and me, and he is the way. 
And we are the ones who determine whether we will resist it or we will embrace it. So, to say Jesus is the only way to heaven, it's not exclusive because it's open to everyone, and it's not exclusive because it's true. Well, what about this then? Some people are put off because they think that statement sounds arrogant. So, is it? Is it arrogant? Are we Christians being, are we being cavalier? Are we being haughty, conceited? Are we being self-important or coming off as superior when we say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? Dear Abby thinks so. Here's what she said. The height of arrogance is to attempt to show people the errors in the religion of their choice. Really? Really? Well, she hadn't been to Haiti to see what the choice of voodoo does to individuals and families and children and the difference that Christian missionaries have made in the lives of people in Haiti who were once enslaved to voodoo. And she hasn't been to the Middle East to see woman, women draped in burqas and confined to the home and oppressed. The height of arrogance is an attempt to show people the errors in the religion of their choice. What if their religion is false? What if it's doctrines of demons? What about that? Rabbi Shumli Botek comes out even stronger than Abby. Here's what he writes. I'm absolutely against any religion that says that one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is any different than spiritual racism. It's a way of saying that we are closer to God than you, and that's what leads to hatred. So many people consider it arrogant. They consider it narrow-minded. They consider it bigoted for Christians to contend that the only path to God must go through Jesus Christ. And in our day of religious pluralism and tolerance, this claim is politically incorrect. It's considered to be a verbal slap in the face of other belief systems. So some people like the approach expressed by East Indian philosopher Swami Vivekananda. Boy, I wish his name was Jones. Wouldn't it be nice if his name was Jones? Swami Vivekananda. Here's what he says. We Hindus accept all religions as true. Lee Strobel testifies that when he was an atheist, he bristled at the assertion by Christians that Jesus was the only way to be forgiven. Who do they think they are? He would ask himself. Of course, now he's answering that question as a pastor himself. Well, in Acts chapter 9, we have the record of what happened when one man came face to face with Jesus. Now, before he encountered Jesus, he was filled with contempt for Christians. He was filled with rage against Christians. He practiced another religion. And so he was determined to persecute and even execute the leaders of this new religious faith with its exclusive and arrogant truth claims. And one day he was traveling to another city to arrest some Christ followers, 
And he met Jesus on the road, and he was converted in an instant. He fell into the dust of the Damascus road and cried out, Lord, who are you? What do you want me to do? Just like that. He realized through this experience that Jesus was the only way to truly know God. So, Saul changed. He changed. He became Paul. And instead of tormenting believers, he devoted his life to telling non-believers about Christ. Instead of persecuting Christians, we see him planting churches. And several years after this life-changing event, the Apostle Paul traveled to a very cosmopolitan city that was known for its religious diversity and its pluralistic views. And Athens was not unlike America today. People were free to believe whatever they wanted to, and all beliefs were considered equally valid. There were hundreds of different religions to choose from in Athens, thousands of deities to worship. And when Paul arrived in Acts 17, 16, it says that he was distressed to see that the city was full of idols. He was disturbed when he saw this cornucopia of superstition. The Athenian culture valued open discussion of new ideas, so Paul capitalized on that, and he reasoned with the people out in the marketplace, and the crowd grew, and he taught them about the uniqueness of Jesus as God in the flesh. And because of this, the city fathers invited Paul to come to a prominent area, a prominent meeting place, an elevated platform called the Bema, and to explain himself more clearly. Since they were interested in religion, they thought that he could just add Christianity to their belief system. Maybe what Paul was saying would be something that they could kind of mix in with the other religions. And you might be surprised to learn that Paul was actually very respectful in Athens. He affirmed them for their interest in spiritual matters. He did. And he acknowledged their sincerity. He didn't stand up on Mars Hill uh, with a scroll in his hand and beat it into the palm of his hand as he berated them. He didn't demean them for their views. Instead, he recognized something that's true for each one of us, that we all have a God-given desire to connect with Him, and he knew those people did. And so he humbly affirmed them. He didn't blast them because they believed something different. He knew that while they were caught up in their religious system, these citizens of Athens were living there only because they had no real knowledge of Jesus. God had set eternity in their hearts, but they had not yet learned about forgiveness and salvation in Christ. So he thoroughly and patiently taught them. And there are four key movements in Paul's message that I think can help us gently and graciously witness in our very pagan and very polytheistic culture here in the 21st century in America. First thing he did in Acts 17, 24 was he tried to establish the greatness of God. He identified God as the creator. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He emphasized to the Athenians that we human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation that we are the primary receivers of his love and affection and attention. And then in verse 25, he expounds on the goodness of God. He identifies God as a provider. 
that God Himself gives to all people life and breath and everything else. He identified God as the source of life, as the sustainer of life, the one who holds it all together, and without Him it would come apart and disintegrate. And then in verse 26, when he had their attention, Paul focused on the government of God. He said, He is Lord because the gods of the Greeks were distant beings. They were checked out. They had no concern for people. They were distant, remote. And Paul says that the unknown God, unknown God determined the times set for you and the exact places of where you should live. In other words, he cares about you personally, who you are, where you live, what your address is. And Paul taught in verse 27 that the true God is not far from each one of us. And they knew that was true. And we know that's true. Because if you get under a good light with an open Bible, you draw near to Him, you know it's true. He will draw near to you. You get in a quiet place, a solitary place, and you open your heart to Him in prayer, and you know it's true. He will draw near to you. He's not far from each one of us. He is intimately involved in our lives. And then as he brings his message to a close in verse 31, Paul points people to the grace of God. He identifies Jesus as the Savior, that Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Creator God for His people, how He wants us to be saved from our sins, how He wants us to be restored to Him. And so I want you to see how Paul approached those pagan and pluralistic Athenians, not with heavy-handedness, not with judgmentalism. Paul would have never belonged to Westboro Baptist Church. He was wired differently. He cared about those people. That's why he was disturbed about all the idols in the city. He saw them trapped in superstition, and he wanted to set them free. Many years ago in a conference, the participants were arguing about what made Christianity unique from all the other religions. C.S. Lewis was a strong defender of the faith. He came in late. He sat down, and he asked, what's all the rumpus about? And he learned that they were debating the essence of Christianity, and, and he immediately commented, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Karl Barth one of the 20th century's premier theologians wrote, all religion is man reaching up to God in his own way, according to his own terms, on his own merit, in his own strength. Christianity, to be differentiated from religion, Christianity alone is God reaching down to man. All non-Judeo-Christian religions are an expression of man's defiance of God, including his way, his will, his work. If you ask most people today why they think God will let them into heaven, they will say something like, I try to be good. I go to church. I'm not perfect, but I believe God will weigh my good deeds against my bad deeds, and I hope the good outweighs the bad. If it does, he will let me into heaven. Bart says it's man's pride that believes God somehow owes him a heavenly home 
or eternal life as a reward for good deeds or extra effort or earnest sincerity. But heaven cannot be earned or deserved or bought, which is why God has reached down and just given us.